I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Road to El Dorado. Oh, listen out for some Jerry Goldsmith's The Mummy score here, followed by James Horner's The Mask of Zorro. The legend of a lost city of gold. And the two men brave enough to find it. I am Miguel. And I am Tulio. And they call us Miguel and Tulio. Seven! Your dice are loaded! I will give you the honor of a quick and painless death. Mm. But not with that. I'll bet we can make that. Two pesetas says we can't. You're wrong! You lose. DreamWorks Pictures invites you. Holy shit! Oh, no! To join two friends on an incredible journey. We'll follow that trail. What trail? To the magnificent city of gold. El Dorado. Big smile. Like you mean it. They actually think we're gods. Miguel and Tulio. The mighty and powerful gods. Hello. Now. You're going to need my help. What makes you think we need your help? Are you serious? They're bound for excitement. Yeah! Who's the guy? You the guy. Go! Romance. Mm-hmm. And danger. I know you are not God. You, you're not a god? That was good, huh? Featuring six new songs from Elton John and Tim Rice, the Oscar-winning team from The Lion King. The Road to El Dorado. Stop that! This is a commissioned show sponsored by Gideon, one of our listeners. And welcome back to the classroom, Mackenzie and Nathan Eastrum. Dushy Balba! (laughs) <laughs> is there room for Shibola? <laughs> How's it going, guys? Fantastic. We're uh, super happy to be on this one. Excellent. Honest. Yeah. Side note, Mackenzie was not feeling fantastic. In fact, Mackenzie found out the next day that she had COVID. Thank you so much for soldiering through this one. You were amazing. And I say soldiering through because I don't like to treat my guests like soldiers. Had I known you actually had COVID, there's no way we'd have actually recorded this. I'm not James Cameron. But nobody knew. And folks, it's not over. Stay safe. Make the smart choices. It was one of those uh, suggestions for a commission where I was like, I feel quite guilty saying yes to this because we've meant to do it for ages. We can never quite get it together. But as soon as someone's like, can we commission this? I'm like, that is way more preferable than we get suggestions quite often when I open the window for, would you like to do this thing you definitely don't want, like, or have ever seen? Here is a thing that you've never heard of. Yeah. Which, uh, frankly, is fine. I'd actually like, I 
like being asked to do commissions for for things that I would never think of. Personal, like, because it, it kind of makes me think I should probably watch that thing mm. that's way out of my comfort zone just yeah. to you know just to broaden it, it my gives horizons. Us an opportunity to assess them, yeah. but we don't always come to the conclusion that yes, we could get a show out. Yeah, of this. and it d- definitely makes it difficult to in the immediate jump on that thing and go yes this thing i've never heard of i'll definitely do that and it's it sounds uh, obscure uh, especially when like usually when i open the window for commissions it closes pretty fast because people rush in a little history and perspective on the animation process not like we haven't talked about that before In the early 21st century, our old friend and tyrant, Jeffrey Katzenberg, is locked into direct ego-driven competition with his former employers at Disney. He had left in 1994 after The Lion King in a quarter of a billion dollar huff his hopes of becoming king of the castle confounded. And in a way that strangely bookends the period that we led up to recently with the Don Bluth classics of the 1980s, Jeffrey signs a deal with Steven Spielberg to get their own Disney 90s renaissance with Blackjack and executive level high-class escorts. And a lot of the first DreamWorks films are made expressly with the inside information that Jeffrey is party to about Disney productions, past, present, and future. Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King courted Weinstein-style Oscar prestige. So in 1998, The Prince of Egypt delivers a musical variation of the Ten Commandments, reminding the Academy that they used to make biblical epics with swords and sandals. That same year, Pixar's second film, A Bug's Life, is pipped to the post by Ants from DreamWorks PDI, starring everyone's favourite Oscar darling, Woody Allen. Prince of Egypt does extremely well as a religious epic, similar to the way that Ben-Hur or King of Kings or The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe drew big crowds seeking to be told an inspiring biblical story huddled together in the dark. And at this time, because of lengthy pre-production planning that he himself oversaw, Jeffrey knows that the House of Mouse is planning a huge Incan epic named Kingdom of the Sun with music by Sting for release in the year 2000. So he gets the road to El Dorado into place to steal the thunder of the gods. Weirdly, Kingdom of the Sun ended up being scrapped and repurposed into the Emperor's new groove, so audiences in 2000 ended up with not one, but two delightful animated Central American set period comedies, and both were largely ignored. Despite the sheer excellence on show, El Dorado actively loses money, costing $95 million and making only $76 million. The world seems to have decided it really wants Pixar's new brand of 3D animation instead. It didn't matter that these new films blended various disciplines and technologies and are referred to by the creators as tradigital. The general public saw Pocahontas and Mulan and Tarzan up on the screen and decided that they had seen enough of that. It was time for a change. The previously barely contested Disney likewise had problems encouraging interest in Fantasia 2000, Lilo and Stitch, Atlantis the Lost Empire, and later Brother Bear and Home on the Range. In 2001, Shrek kicks his way out of the DreamWorks outhouse accompanied by the raucous irreverence of Smash Mouth, and the world decides, yes, 
it wants this. A superficially similar variation on Pixar movies, but with far more fart gags, pop culture references, and lewd humour for the parents and teenagers, plus a lot of screaming animals, and it turns out making direct sniping jabs at Disney as an institution scores such substantial points with an increasingly cynical audience that two decades later, Disney are still overtly roasting their past achievements in exchange for present praise. Interestingly, the director of Shrek, Andrew Adamson, also directed the popular Disney-produced Jesus But a Lion picture, and we are hopefully going to cover the Narnia trilogy at the end of this year. This is the beginning of the end for hand-drawn. DreamWorks and Blue Sky are going after the mouse with the wildly successful likes of Ice Age and Madagascar and Shark Tale and Over the Hedge. Disney begins to revise the historical shifting balance on their artistic and commercial output. If the medium they were always best at is losing to the output that their competitors are suddenly very successful at, then they are going to have to learn new skills. This leads to Chicken Little, Meet the Robinsons, and the unforgettable Bolt. Amid the decade-spanning flurry of interest in Pixar and the farting disco-dancing ogre, the third of these tradigital DreamWorks films, Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron, is also largely ignored in 2002, netting a paltry $122 million. Possibly because it's a very earnest and straightforward horse tale, far closer to Bambi than the wildly successful Shrek 2 would soon be, but also... White America doesn't like to be reminded of their heritage of genocide and the steady eradication of Native America, no matter how much the film tries to avoid levelling direct valid criticism at their ancestors. Around that time, Atlantis The Lost Empire does mediocre box office for Disney in 2002. They spend a whopping $140 million on Treasure Planet and only make $110 million back. It seems like a supreme challenge to rekindle interest in that kind of film, regardless of high budgets and jaw-dropping visuals. Audiences especially do not seem to like animated boys' own swashbuckling adventures. Back in 1997, Hercules likewise fared a lot less well than their previous, less action-focused Broadway comedy musicals. True to form, in 2004, Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas does terribly for DreamWorks, ending this brief four-picture experiment with a pathetic $80 million at the box office on a $60 million budget. Because again, nobody likes pirate movies. This is seven days before Johnny Depp acts a bit strange and makes the live-action Pirates of the Caribbean an undead franchise. But let's travel back to three years earlier before this dismal conclusion, one year before the beginning of the cinematic documentation of the Shrek Age. The year 2000 saw the release of the second of these four films, The Road to El Dorado. El Dorado's production, Alchemy, is manifestly a posturing reclamation of previously successful elements for Disney. It has a very similar animation style to The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the movie in production when Jeffrey left. Frankly, the two escapades could share the same world. These events literally take place 38 years after the Quasimodo story in 1519, Spain and Mesoamerica. We have Kevin Klein, who co-starred in Hunchback. We have Hans Zimmer, Elton John and Tim Rice, the Oscar-winning trio who raised up The Lion King to new heights of musical brilliance. And as a result of chasing the tail of their loathed enemy, DreamWorks succeeded in making a really splendid film that feels several years too late. 
But let's abandon all notions that financial, fame, infamy, and cultural impact are the only measures of success. Sometimes just being a hidden treasure waiting to be discovered by the new eyes and minds of a new generation is its own reward, and doing so on your own terms is far more of a victory. Let's begin with the look of the film and the creation myth. Uh, do you folks want to talk about the animation styles that we see in the opening sequence and how that moves us on to the rest of the film? So we've got this opening in the movie that I've always adored just from a design standpoint that is, I think, intending to mimic the traditional art found in uh, temples and other ruins in the Mesoamerican area. Uh, I've spent a little bit of time in Mexico and it does like feel very genuine to the kind of artwork that you find in that area. And it's got these very pleasantly geometric shapes in the opening that flow wonderfully into each other in animation, which you never get to see this kind of work in motion outside of these kind of short intro sequences. hits you very immediately with a full face of extremely bright color and brilliant imagery of just this is essentially what paradise looks like which is what the song is also telling you while it's opening uh and it just gives you a little taste of that before you get thrown into the proper opening of the movie which is in slightly dingier 1519 Spain. Mm. Um, and it also establishes the small armadillos, which are important <laughs> throughout the rest of the movie. We like Will armadillos. Will later be narratively relevant. Yeah, the, uh, the storyboard work that they did in preparation for the film is, it likewise builds on that the bright primary colours, the uh, the I, I'm not going to say simplistic, but there's a there's a narrative style of folk art which I think you're absolutely right, Mackenzie. They were basing it off uh, Mesoamerican and Mexican folk style art, which is there to tell a story. The detail is less important than does it communicate what's happening. Yeah. Essentially, some of the oldest comics in the entire world, if you want yeah. to call them that, are Absolutely. art found in the Mesoamerican uh, area. Absolutely. And, it, and, and that bright, vivid blues, greens, yellows way of communicating it, I think, adds to the, the impact of what they are putting across in story terms. It's also interesting to note that that area of the world is one of the only places that had an abundance of the color blue available to them in oh. early artwork. Mm. Uh, because instead of having to rely on plants like indigo, they had just huge deposits of turquoise. If you go there now, turquoise is dirt cheap compared to anywhere else in the world because they just have it everywhere. And so they are able to use that in a way that basically no one else was for hundreds of years. Because you can't rely on plants to give you the exact blue that you want. They're going to come out slightly different every time. Hmm. 
And also you have to grow them. Well, yeah, and there is that. Um, I think one of the other things that's notable about this the creation myth at the beginning is that it's it's yeah, the comics thing, Mackenzie, really insightful there. They, they've patterned it after... <laughs> the effects of a children's book almost. There's this slightly naive element to it, which comes through in the fact that it looks like it's been coloured in using felt pens, which is a very sort of basic, simplistic way of making your pictures colourful, but it doesn't have the subtlety that you might get in other mediums. But it does put across this very vivid and bright way of, of telling a story and the other thing it made me think of was the yellow submarine yeah it does have hmm. a little bit of that it also does a good job i think in establishing that the tone of this is going to be different than a lot of stuff around mesoamerica before it because there is unfortunately a tendency in media to depict these cultures as like very cruel and focus on um well, which this movie does to a certain extent focus on the history of human sacrifice, but by opening like this, by describing it as a paradise, by showing it in colorful, friendly terms, you're establishing, no, this is actually a good, interesting, cool place to go visit and not something you should be afraid of. It also manages to get across when they bring in the rivers of gold to the, uh, the paradisical imagery. It's not a word I've ever heard before, but it makes perfect sense. What, paradisical? Paradisical. Yeah, it's definitely a word. Okay. It it differs, I think, again, from often when this kind of culture is portrayed, there's a sense of, as well as that cruelty that they want to bring in, there's a sense of, aren't they stupid? They don't really know what gold is worth. But here, when it enters, it's... That what the gold is representative of is more the emphasis of its value. The fact that it's it's reflective of light and the sun and warmth and life and it brings the focus to gold not being valuable in and of itself but in what you can do with it because if you're using it as a as a building material as a functional material it's its advantages lie in the fact that a it's beautiful b it's reflective and c it's very malleable you can do what you want with it you can make all sorts of things that you cannot make with any other materials and it doesn't corrode so you can make things that last so this was written by ted elliott and terry rossio who have quite a prestigious career if uh, you look at what they've uh, done and they've always seemed to work together they co-wrote aladdin the mask of zorro small soldiers shrek for all of our for all of my bashing it at the beginning for, for being all popular and full of farts. Somebody won't told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest Treasure Planet, which is ironic, because one killed the other. Pirates of the Caribbean one through four. Uh, but not the fifth one, interestingly. Uh, National Treasure 1 and 2. I missed the boat on those two. I grew up on Indiana Jones and they just never engaged me and uh, then there's the Lone Ranger, which was uh, an attempt to make a Pirates of the Caribbean-style franchise there, and just it completely fell apart. Like their, their core 
golden age was between Aladdin in the early 90s and the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean movie at the very beginning of the 2010s. But I mean, like, they've, they've effectively made Disney billions with what they've written, which is, it's no mean feat. And clearly, uh, Jeffrey was like, I'll get these guys on it. It was co-directed by Don Paul, who doesn't have much in terms of big films to his uh, uh, name, but he has worked on visual effects for a lengthy amount of time. He worked on the uh, filmation series Brave Star, but he also worked with Disney with the, and the Fox and Hound, The Black Cauldron, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Pocahontas, and then moved over to DreamWorks. I'm assuming Jeffrey got in a truck and said, who's coming with me? Where he worked on the effects for uh, The Prince of Egypt, which we actually sat down and saw today. For the first time since I saw it in the cinema, that's a good movie. Don Paul also worked on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which we will be talking about in a few weeks' time. And his co-director was Bibo Bergeron, who went on to direct uh, Shark Tale, one of the most <laughs> obnoxious uh, animated movies of the 2000s. But he was also on the production teams for, amongst others, An American Tale 2, Five All Goes West. Funny, since we mentioned that uh, when we were talking about Don Bluth. All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 funny because we've talked about the first one uh, when we talk about Don Bluth. Fern Gully The Last Rainforest, which we saw in preparation for the Avatar show. We're Back A Dinosaur Story, one of the funniest shows we've ever recorded on. Flushed Away, uh, one of the I say, I would say lesser uh, Aardman films because it's computer graphics rather than claymation and thus less special. (laughs) To be and, fair, their studio had just burned down. Yeah, I mean, uh, what are you going to do if, if all your clay has... Well, your, your studio turned into a giant kiln and one of the greatest tragedies that ever happened to British art was that moment. Uh, and uh, Bibo Bergeron also worked on The Iron Giant, one of our best shows ever. So, I mean, they started with a really good pedigree of, of, of uh, dudes who knew their, how to direct animation, how to make animation look great, and also how to write characters that were sparky and fun and keep a story going based on those characters. And I think notably people who worked in higher action types of animation than certain other things, especially anybody with a pedigree from Aladdin has mm. a lot of um, swashbuckling under their belt yeah. that can be very handy. Aladdin is quite a bit of a swashbuckler, carefully subdued in certain ways, if that makes sense. It does. It's not the core focus. Yeah. The core focus is the comedy and and these, you know, bright characters, yeah. Yeah. That does kind of beg the question, though, what was it about pirate movies that was putting everybody off until Pirates of the Caribbean came along? Well, yeah, seven days after the last time they rejected one. Yeah, so it's not (laughs) as if there'd been some kind of massive cultural shift in the last week. And it's also not like, oh, well, it wasn't in live action. Cutthroat Island destroyed a studio. We've got to cover that one day because it was a serious bomb. Muppets Treasure Island is probably the worst Muppets. We got cabin fever. That's the second time you've said that in the past few recordings. So um, I'm going to have to back that up. Yeah, we're going to have to cover Muppets Treasure Island. I will just point point out it may be a personal beef. Muppets Treasure Island was my first ever date movie. Uh, Maybe not the best. Mine was Jurassic Park. That's better. 
better. Way better. Hmm. It still remains one of my favorite films of all time. Okay, so our heroes are Miguel and Tulio. Tulio and Miguel. (laughs) Tulio and Miguel. They were inspired by, and I figured this out as I was watching, I was like, hang on, Road to El Dorado? They were inspired by Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, who took part in a whole bunch of buddy movies in the 40s and 50s, like Road to Singapore, Road to Rio, Road to Bali, Road to Hong Kong, Road to Zanzibar, and Road to Utopia, parodied repeatedly in Family Guy, where Stewie and Brian go on the road and sing about that. Crazy travel conditions, huh? First class and new class. Whoa, careful with that joke, it's an antique. We're off on the road to Rhode Island. We're not gonna stop till we're there. Maybe for a beer. Whatever dangers we may face, we'll never fear or cry. That's right, until we're syndicated, Fox will never let us die, please. One of the first things that made me sit up and start taking notes when I listened to the commentary this morning is that uh, in the same way as Hamilton is stage-directed, when we meet our heroes, they are wearing bright primaries, they have their coded blue and coded red for, like, cool-headed iciness and fiery-headed dreamer. Like, they're wearing these bright colours, and the Spanish street that they're on is very kind of beige and grey. It's not dingy-looking, but it's very like theatrically sparing so that your gaze is drawn to these vibrant heroes who heroes these vibrant scallywags who do not fit into their society everything around them doesn't quite work with who they are Mm. they're too big for the world yeah and there's a there's a again in the way color and in particular light and shadow is used at this point to get across the narrative beats of the story like you said Tulio and Miguel are the most vivid things on screen whenever anything is happening at mm. this point. Everything in the background is... It's its not pastel, it's not washed out exactly, but it's pale, it's, it's bright. You've got the Spanish buildings are all in white stone. The sky is very light blue when you do get some, some brightness going on, but for the most part, they are in kind of slightly overshadowed mm. alleyways doing the thing they do best. I would say it looks slightly worn out. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's an old a, world. Yeah, which is which is something that sort of gives that point to not just it's not at this stage that the gold of El Dorado is pulling them forward. There is something pushing them away mm. from Spain. It is not satisfying either of them, and they both have different but complementary values in the sense that, like you said, Alex Miguel is the. Uh, idealistic dreamer and Tulio is the pragmatic practical physical focused of the of the two of them mm. they are look the, at what we've got in front of us the hyacinths and bread combination of of mm. what are we seeking physical satisfaction or spiritual satisfaction and they're after both and the reason that they work so well together is that that means that the balance is able to be maintained in both of them mm. And Spain is not satisfying either quality for them at the moment. Your dice are loaded! What? You gave me loaded dice? He gave me loaded dice! Guard, arrest him! You dare to impugn my honor? He was the one who was cheating! Arrest him! He tricked these sailors and took their money! Oh. Now I'm the thief? Yes. Take a look in the mirror, pal. Oh, 
You better give them their money back or I'll... On guard guard yourself. I will give you the honor of a quick and painless death. But not with that. I prefer to fight fairly. Aha! Well, any last words? I will cut you to ribbons, fool. Such mediocrity. Let your sword do the talking. I will. It will be loquacious to a fault. Ha! Ha! Take that! Ha! 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 You fight like my sister. I fought your sister. That's a compliment. Blackguard! Heathen! Not the face, not the face! Ladies and gentlemen, we've decided it's a draw. Thank you all for coming. You've been great. See you soon. Adios! Congratulations. No, very good. No, that was good. At this exact point, they need to have a conversation about how each sees the other as escalating that difficult situation. They need to be critical of what they perceive as each other's faults, so that by the end, they can appreciate each other's strengths. This is how structure and storytelling and characters work. Character dynamics and conflict. At this point, the audience has only seen who they really are in asides. Unfortunately then, they're chased by a bull, into some barrels, captured by Cortez, thrown into the brig on the Conquistador's ship, they meet a friendly horse, and they're off to the next adventure. Very <laughs> We should have kept our swords, I think. Yeah. I've got a plan. What is it? Uh, well, uh, you pet him. Yeah. And I'll... Some of the critics uh, said that they the characters were interchangeable. I don't think they explored in. They said they look and sound the same, and I don't think they. Ex- one's got blonde hair, one's got dark hair. What on earth were you looking at? <laughs> okay. And they're animated quite differently. Their expressions are quite different. They're. I, I don't think their voices sound very similar. Mm. Admittedly, as a child, I had a hard time remembering whose name was which, but that was just because they often say them right next to each other in yeah. a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern <laughs> way, and I'm just not good at names. They're both is good. <laughs> uh, but I, I think what I mean is um, they don't go out of their way in the film to make them really butt heads until it comes to what seems like a falling out. And it's almost misleading in that the falling out involves Chell so heavily that that then they're going to part ways that it doesn't actually become about their own ideologies. There isn't enough of a clash early on where uh, uh, Tulio reprimands Miguel for being too much of a... uh, for having his head in the clouds. So, for example, when I went out of my way to make Robin and Oberon very different at the beginning of uh, The Princess Thieves. Finally, under Hammersmith Bridge, satisfied that their getaway had been clean enough, they inspected the spoils of the day. Next time, less of the theatrics and more of the intimidation. I'll take the lead. You took far too long there. For the practical necessities of a robbery, yes. But not for building on a legend. That's just what I'm worried about, Rob. You keep focusing on building this image, and the little brat will be right. You're gonna let your heart run places your head ain't going. You're gonna get caught. I'm not giving up the Robin Hood persona. You can forget that. You scare me with this kind of talk, Rob. You ain't him. They never caught Robin Hood. They never killed him. And most of all, he was beloved. 
The name and the reputation built on centuries of mythology will grease all kinds of wheels. It will make the people we rob from fear us and move faster with less fuss, and the more we give back to the poor, the bigger our support network. It's not money, power, women like all those other clumsy oafs in the outlaw game imagine. It's money, generosity, status, women, and a whole city of the downtrodden who think we're the dog's bollocks. But that's just it. This seems to be more about you. Piss them off enough and they'll come after you with everything they've got. There's already a 50 gold reward on your head. 50 gold? I shall have to drive that up a bit. Soon it shall be a hundred, and we shall be infamous. I think I get what you mean about them being... I, I would say it's less that they're indistinguishable, it's more that they're inseparable. They mm. come as a unit, and that's part of the point. To me, that's part of the appeal. And there's something quite... Almost like they're two sides of the same person? Yeah, and, and when they have those p very performative arguments, it mm. happens twice, where they are at it's each the other's get throats. It's their get help, yeah. They're at each other's throats, and initially it's like, is this real? Are they actually fighting, or is this just to pull off the con? Mm. It is to pull off the con, but if you listen carefully to the things they're saying each, to each other, they are true. They are heartfelt, and it's almost like this is the only way that they can fight, that they can get at each other without risking pushing the other one away. Yes, they're so performative, both of them, as people, that it seems like they have a hard time setting that down to actually deal with things mm. at any point. Yeah. Uh, the the two actors, uh, Kevin Klein and Kenneth Branagh, uh, are, have amazing chemistry together. So when they go back and forth, a lot of their dialogue is improvised. I think that that actually that that level of cohesion between the two characters might, in fact, have somewhat papered over the cracks that would have delineated their characters a little more. Uh, in, in other words, that works against people who aren't looking for the differences in these characters or aren't engaged with the characters, but it works for everyone who's charmed by them instantly and is totally along for the ride. In opposition to most animated movies, they actually recorded the dialogue for those characters in the studio together mm -hmm. so they could bounce back and forth that way. And uh, it really comes across with the back and forth of the dialogue between the two of them. Mm. Thieves who question themselves are some of my favorite types of characters because by their design, they're going to be tricksters, which makes them interesting as opposed to like most straight shooters will say roughly what their credo is at some point in the, uh, uh, the production in the story. But thieves often have to lie to themselves in order to do what they have to do and survive. Absolutely. And if they're going to go anywhere as characters, then at some point they're going to have to reckon with whatever it was that pushed them into that lifestyle to begin with. Mm. Also, we like to see somebody who commits minor villainies, who that doesn't really hurt anybody, decide to do better with their life and to do better things because you know, we can all relate to uh, performing little potentially forgivable sins and, uh, and, and just trying to be a better person. It's way more relatable than here is a goody two-shoes. Like even Steve Rogers is a little bit sneaky in how he tries to get into the army. He certainly can be. They're thieves and con men, and they are they are screwing over some horrible guys. So it's kind of like, ah, take their money, that's fine. We, we forgive them as an audience immediately. And interestingly, 
the way they get the treasure map that leads them then thence to El Dorado remarkably quickly and efficiently, by the way, so that they can have <laughs> the rest of the film, is a fair win. He throws the, the uh, real proper dice that are not loaded and gets a seven and is only chased and uh, rumpled when it turns out that the dice he was using up until then are in fact loaded. So he won the map fair and square, probably should have left the gold. That I think is an early example of a kind of good luck, bad luck two-hander that keeps throwing itself at them throughout the film. And we're about to hit another big one because they end up accidentally falling into the barrels that get them accidentally onto this ship Mm. that's going to the place that's exactly where they want to be at this stage, but then they accidentally get shipwrecked. And in spite of all of their planning and plotting, for the most part, when big things happen to them, Mm. it's because they have literally had to throw themselves on the mercy of the sea or the volcano or whatever thing it is that's Hang on. Are you saying next to them. What well, seems like getting to the new world's going to be difficult from Spain. Actually, it's, it's going to be, be super, super easy. easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh, well, really? It is an inconvenience <laughs> because they nearly drown. Yeah. It's also noteworthy that they make it to the new world in spite of themselves. They they fall into some, ba- they jump into some barrels, get loaded onto a ship, escape with a horse somehow. The horse is now bears. Yes, uh, the the horse's name is Altivo, and uh, I noted that he was potentially inspired by Achilles, who was uh, Kevin Klein's horse in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Khan, who was Mulan's horse two years previously, voiced by Frank Welker. Dishonor on your cow. <laughs> but he, this guy also, this horse also seems. Not not even a little bit, but a lot of an inspiration for Maximus in one of my favourite Disney films, Tangled, in 2010, ten years after this. So it's like a, it's a chain of horses. Maximus is what El Tivo would be if he took his job seriously. Bingo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> El Tivo is technically Cortez's horse at the beginning of yeah. this movie, but he's not into it. Yeah, no, he's going to say I'm not surprised he runs away <laughs> then. <laughs> He looks miserable in the opening scene. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll come back to Cortez because that stuff is deadly serious. But yeah, he's there in the movie and uh, he's there at the end and he's there at the beginning. In fact, technically, our heroes are going on their journey with Cortez's conquest and conquistadors as the backdrop, even though that backdrop should be making the loudest sound in the world, if that makes any sense. Okay. Here's the plan. Dead of night, you and I mm-hmm. grab some provisions, hijack one of those uh, longboats, and then we row back to Spain like there's no manana. Back to Spain, yeah? Yeah. In a rowboat. You got it. Great. Sensational. And that that's your plan, is it? That's pretty much it. Well, I like it. So, how do we get on deck? Hmm. In the dead of night, you and I grab some provisions, hijack one of those... Longboats. Great. Okay, what's your idea, smart guy? What what, what, what do you mean? Don't ask me that. You're the one with the plans. Wait, actually, I I have an idea. Uh, Come on, give give me me a boost. There are lots of really good bits of visual humour and storytelling in this DreamWorks quartet uh, of uh, this Prince of Egypt... Stallion of the Cimarron and uh, Sinbad. Uh, One of my favourites here was when they end up adrift in a rowboat. 
they both take an oar, and after they wake up in, in, in one hot morning, they both start rowing, but they're rowing in different directions, so the boat's just going round and round in circles. It's a really neat way of showing how their uh, contrasting uh, outlooks on life might actually have them going nowhere and, and might actually have left them without momentum. It suggests as well that one of the reasons why it's really important that they sit down and plan things is not necessarily to do with the ability to get one over on everyone else, but the ability to make sure that they are both pulling in the same direction. Yes. It's like that uh, the, the dog thing you get shown at workplace uh, uh, training courses where it's like, <laughs> if we both pull in the same direction, it's better for everyone. A movie where a lot of the big events are dependent on kind of sheer dumb luck yeah. or a lack thereof but how they actually move throughout it is dependent on how they work off of each other and how often one of them can lead the way in a certain situation while the other has a really hard time following their directions yeah it's almost baffling that they managed to manage to have seemingly been in this partnership for as long as they have been implied to hmm. like they work off of each other very well in a way that is always on the edge of becoming a disaster yeah well the scene where they land i absolutely love this bit because you go from again the over overwhelming color for the the disaster that is the ship thing is it's all blues and, and dark greens and shadows and, and night and threat and, and awful things happening. And then they kind of segue into this paler blue-green as the sun comes up and the, the rowboat lands, but they don't realise it's landed. And you get that moment where they both think they're dead. Mm. They think they've somehow gone to heaven and they are revealing their regrets of their life in a very telling way. Uh, Tulio is lamenting the fact that he never had enough gold and Miguel is lamenting the fact that he never went on quite enough adventure but then you have that exchange where Miguel's, uh, where Tulio says that Miguel has always made his life adventurous mm. and Miguel says to Tulio you always made my life rich so there's, there's this sort of their values exchange and mesh and kind of swap back and forwards in a way that I think kind of creates this bond between them that is the mystical third thing that's created when their two selves overlap. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to fast track us to Chell. When they uh, find this mysterious lost city, they pretty much just stumble on her. Uh, generally, as a rule, if you're writing... Uh, bats, sudden bad luck happening and throwing your character into something terrible <coughs> is good writing because then you have to think your way out of it and, and uh, you need to work out uh, like challenges that, that just happen because that's actually quite... It's, it's something that we can relate to, the, the, the shit that just rears up out of nowhere on some idle Tuesday. However... Solving problems with sudden blind luck is bad writing. So, for example, in everything Ernest Cline will ever write, um, it, it's like, oh my god, this challenge is I've got to be the best joust boy in the world. Luckily, I've been doing joust all summer. It's like, oh, isn't that convenient? But you can forgive a lot of writing that appears to rush our heroes from one situation to another if something is witty and charming. Brevity is not a bad thing in and of itself. And when you don't give a shit about the characters, no film is short enough. 
think in this movie, the good luck tends to only serve to get them deeper into situations, yeah. which is what salvages it from being too much of an uncomfortable coincidence theater. Yeah. They... It's it's momentarily good in that they don't get murdered immediately, but they have more and more that they have to keep up with. Yeah, and uh, the fact that it's a really brisk 90 minutes always helps for the kind of story where you're like, we could say, well, isn't it convenient that they just stumbled upon this lost city and it's got a, 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 simp- a giant stone statue of... Uh, some mounted men on a horse and it's been laid there by the, the Aztecs themselves and then suddenly the Aztecs turn up and go, oh my god, just as we foretold in this stone prophecy. Isn't that convenient? And it's like, yeah, but if we went for ages to explain how this happened in some organic way, we'd be here for two and a half hours. So let's I, just move on. I we? do think as well there is something being said there about... If you are fixated enough on something, yeah. you will see it where you want to see it. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. This movie in general has a, um, I'm going to say, not say interesting, because I know that's against ah, the rules. well done. Uh, it's, it's got a surprisingly confrontational uh, view towards religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the the religion of the people in El Dorado, but also, and we'll talk about Cortez more later, he is, from the beginning, framed within Christian terms. Mm-hmm. There is this sense that both him and uh, the priest in El Dorado are people who will believe whatever, will believe the thing they believe in hard enough to basically change the world around them to make it work. Mm. Yeah, and it that that does chime with <clears throat> something that I noticed when we were watching Prince of Egypt, which is if, if there is a definitive statement being made about religion, it is that if a god tells you to do something good, it's still you who has to enact it. If a god tells you to do something bad, it's still you who has to choose to enact it. If a god asks you if you're a god, you You say say yes. yes. (laughs) Sorry, no, you're absolutely right. It puts the uh, impetus to act in our own hands and gives us the responsibility of our actions. Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily deny that these the, the source of these things are... Uh, divine, but ultimately we are still the the physical mm. embodiment that has to make this thing happen on Earth. Yeah. And we in El Dorado, at least in early drafts, the physical embodiment of God on Earth was actually the armadillo. Ah. <laughs> <clears throat> I did not know that. So, uh, yeah, they stumble upon Chell, who was trying to steal a pot and is being chased by Aztecs. She throws down the pot. It turns out to be gold. They are then taken to the lost Aztec city. And it's fucking beautiful. This is such a pretty film, especially in HD. It is stunning. And I was genuinely shocked when I learned how poor the reception was for this Mm. initially because I I just had it on VHS as a child. I just watched it and that, like enamored with the thing because it's just so beautifully animated and the design is stunning and the colors are vibrant and rich and I don't know how anybody could have seen that in a movie theater and not just been totally swept away by it. it as I said, the I, 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 it was important that I gave some perspective on where we were in terms of what people wanted at this point and it just it felt like Disney had done so well with the 90s renaissance that anything that felt like that would would evoke a I've seen it response to the point where even Disney themselves couldn't keep going in that regard. But uh, yeah, it's I'll I'll talk about this near the end. The the rediscovery of this by a new generation through memes 
is a really excellent way of of giving it that that like that. It's been hibernating for twenty or so years, and now it's awake and there to be explored. Mm. I did see it referenced as a cult classic mm. that was completely ignored when it first came out. Yeah, I so, think we are just coming into the age where a lot of this 2000s era animation which is the stuff that I grew up on is going to be getting these reappraisals it already happened for the Emperor's New Groove that has already been reclaimed as a classic that has... Damn straight. And and worthingly so and I will defend a number of other features that are less well loved from this era because I think it was a time where people were trying really interesting bold stuff that was getting written off as similar to old things, despite being pretty different. The color schemes here are, I mean, the 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 gold and the turquoise are the the key ones, mm-hmm. but there is also a lot of red here from the there's I don't know what they're using for the the paint, whether it's uh, stone or something else. But the volcano in the background is this constant reminder of the the overwhelming red of what happens when the sun becomes too much and the the gold it's also a looming threat that suggests that this civilization could be destroyed at any minute at any time yeah absolutely but the you've gone from but in a natural rather than man-made way well indeed but you've gone from the the sandy yellows and muted colors of spain and then the blues and greens of the ocean to this place where gold is very definitely the dominant color and the sun in this context is representing wealth, prosperity, just this ability to live in an environment where everything feels benevolent. It's warm, it's nourishing, there's lots growing, it's very lush. All the stuff that if you well, I'm about to make a generalised statement, which may only apply to me. If you wanted to be rich, it would be so that you could live somewhere like this. It's it's Eden, essentially. For, for Tulia and Miguel, it's a place that is beautiful in a way that is both natural, but has this human element basically perfectly integrated, as opposed to Spain, that was entirely man-made, or the jungle, which is entirely natural. Nice. It is. A, uh, and then there's a spiritual element throughout in all of the carvings and in all of the uh, many of the practices. Which leads us to, because they are strange and turned up on a horse, they are immediately mistaken for gods. I don't know of the historical accuracy of this. I would highly doubt it. An idea that people in Mesoamerica thought that Cortez specifically and the the Spanish invaders, mm. some of them thought they were gods when they showed up. Yeah. I Again, I doubt that that's accurate, but it, it is a story that has been told before yeah yeah and uh, the way it's handled here is mostly for comedy it's like okay they think we're gods play along maybe we can get gold and it's it's obviously it's it's kind of heartless in that regard but there doesn't seem to be they're not exploiting them that much the gold that they're asking for is not precious life-giving stuff it's just it's it's something that they have in abundance that they throw into the offering uh, whirlpool as a kind of a we, we want our gods to, to have some nice stuff so here's some gold and they're like if you give it to us we can take it to them directly well that's the thing the the there is a 
stupidity about the way Tulio and Miguel look at gold, which yeah. is you're not really using this this gold that you've made into pots and pans and dishes and things that you're just throwing into the whirlpool. It's it's not really being useful for anything, is it? We could take that. You haven't really lost anything, mm. but we've gained. It's it's like they're they're seeing they're rationalizing. specifically from from their perspective and how mm. they perceive gold. Ultimately, they end up doing exactly the same thing. They throw it all into the water because it serves a greater purpose. Yeah. And uh, they are assisted by Chell, who is uh, one of the uh, Aztecs, and she is a rare lady con artist, uh, voiced by Rosie Perez, uh, who we talked about most recently in the Birds of Prey episode, and is fabulous. Um, Chell is a character that I like more and more every time I see this movie and every time I see a picture of her. This movie does so good with Chell in ways that, unfortunately, other animated movies of the time didn't always do well. Mm-hmm. The character is obviously inarguably sexy. There's, there's no <laughs> argument that Chell isn't sexy. Astonishingly sexy. Astonishingly so. But unlike, I, I would say, especially Esmeralda and Pocahontas on the Disney side of things, the camera is not ever very leering at her, or at least a lot less frequently. Look at that she disgusting is... display. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't... She is sexualized, but it's always on her own terms. She is very much a character with a lot of agency and intention, and she's sharp, and she's arguably the smartest one in the whole cast. Mm -hmm. She is the one who actually knows what's going on most of the time. Yeah, she's the opposite of the born Born sexy sexy yesterday, yesterday. which unfortunately is very, very often applied to the native girl trope. And Tell me more about this sex you speak of. Exactly. I think that what it fundamentally comes down to with Chell is that there is a chasm of difference between a character who is sexualized and a character who is allowed to be sexual. Mm. And Chell very definitely falls into that second. Imagine Michael Bay's Chell. Yeah. Well, there's... there's... (laughs) 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 But but I think, honestly, this this is a character that you could only get in a studio that wasn't Disney. You would never... In, it's certainly not in those this early stage. Closest is Megara in Hercules. Absolutely, Meg is, and Meg is close. They are they would get along well. Yes, yes, yeah, they definitely would. The Disney equivalent for this era is Kida from uh, Atlantis, who yeah. is much like Natiri in Avatar and Pocahontas. I am strong. I am serious. I care about my people, which is which are all admirable qualities. Mm. But she doesn't get to do or be more than that. Than that, exactly. And I think that if you look at the distinction with Meg, what is the difference between her and every other Disney heroine. She's a liar. She is mature. She is experienced. She has been through some shit. And Chell has these odd little... Every so often, she doesn't go into a lot of her her backstory. We don't learn much about who she is and where she's come from. I would very much have liked to. They had time for that. They definitely did. But she has these little asides, and she'll say something, and then her her eyes will go downcast. There is stuff that has gone on with that woman Mm. that informs who she is now. I especially love the way she moves. I've never seen another character animated like this. There's such a thing as Jessica Rabbit-style sexy walking. We'll talk about Jessica Rabbit next uh, week, I think. Uh, And 
she's definitely sexy, but she deliberately puts her hands behind her back, almost like she's crossing her arms there, and weaves, and she's serpentine in, in what she does, not in a threatening way, but in a kind of a I'm observing all the angles way. And it's so refreshing to see her go, okay, so you're con men, and I want in on this. And like, we will, we, like, you've got something that I want, I've got something that you want, let's see if we can strike a deal. And yet, they could also have fallen very easily into the, for like all your kind, ye are false. Duplicitous woman trying to screw them over. And it's like, no, honestly, she genuinely does like them and wants to spend time with them, but she's not like a hanger on. She can bring a lot to this particular group. Absolutely. And as I said to you about the, the way that she moves, Although, yes, it's often framed in a way of look how enticing she's being, mm. it, it doesn't really come across that that is the sole reason she moves that way. She does it even when nobody's watching her. Yeah. It, it comes across that this is a, a way of moving that feels very natural to her and is something that she enjoys. Yeah. She also has big expressive eyes, which means that even though she is duplicitous, we're kind of in on it with her because we're seeing every little nuanced expression of looking down or across or sideways Absolutely. to illustrate her misgivings when she doesn't voice them out loud, which she often doesn't. Yeah, well, she is the match to them. She is no more duplicitous or underhanded mm. than they are. Occasionally, she gets one over on them because she's smarter than they are, but that's not the same thing as being more conniving or more manipulative. So when you guys are ready to go back to wherever you came from, I'm going with you. <laughs> no, don't think so. <coughs> all right, fine. <laughs> After all, I'm sure you know the proper rituals for blessing a tribute, the holiest days on the calendar. Oh, and of course you know all about she Balba. <laughs> okay, good luck. See you at the execution. Wait, hold, hold it. <laughs> Deal? Mm. Deal. Not yet. Let's just see how this works out. Uh huh. Well, then I suppose that means you'll want these back. How'd you get those? Where is she keeping them? Call me Chell, your new partner. Uh, that's partner in training. Now put these on. The public's waiting. <laughs> Do you mind? No. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Bye. That last bit's one of my favorite shots of the movie. She tosses them a bunch of ceremonial clothes and goes and sits on a little ottoman legs crossed, looking at them, and she is ogling them. There's a point where she's kind of like biting her lip in a kind of a ha-ha way. It's beautifully animated, especially since the audience has been ogling her. It's like, chill gets a little here. That's another thing she has in common with Megara, who very much enjoys Hercules from the perspective of the female gaze. One note that I did put near the end though, and I'm not sure if it stands against her character, it is just weird. She barely anyone but Miguel and Tulio actually talk to Chell or observe her existence. It's almost like she was a ghost and she's just grabbed onto them and is advising them on what to do right now, but 
she, like no one takes her aside and says you're playing with fire here or uh, no one from her people communicates with her in a meaningful dramatic way yeah she seems to have no family or any real connections with the city she's desperate to leave for reasons that we never find out she may well be from another place entirely and has snuck in there but at best they, she gets treated like a servant girl hmm I do think it's implied, at least via the way she's spoken to early in the movie, that she's wasn't in high standing in the society before she tried to run away with stolen gold. Mm. And in tying herself to the gods like this, she's essentially just made herself to the people around her kind of untouchable by being a servant to the gods. And none of the people really want to get near Tulio Miguel for most of the first chunk of the movie anyways. So they probably don't want to deal with Chell either because she's now in that category of dangerous being. Um, so how are the rest of the Aztec people handled beyond Chell? Because uh, we've got Chief Tanabok, voiced by uh, Edward James Olmos, who was about to be in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Tsekel Khan, the High Priest, voiced by Armand Asante, whom you might remember from the Mambo Kings. He was Sylvester Stallone's evil brother Rico in Judge Dredd, and he was goddamn hilarious in Fatal Instinct, a forgotten hotshot-style parody of that glut of erotic thrillers from the late 80s, early 90s. How, how are the, uh, the Aztec people handled... Uh, beyond just Chell. There is definitely a sense throughout the movie, and especially towards the middle chunk, where the priest, Zekel Khan, is trying to enact this cleansing of the city. There is definitely a sense that the the regular people that live in El Dorado have this kind of looming fear of this religious event that is coming and you can kind of see that when Tulio and Miguel arrive in the city as well mm. but it is definitely more apparent later on when you know the streets have been cleared for the the uh, age of the jaguar to begin but when they are interacted with directly by Tulio and Miguel uh, particularly Miguel they are definitely humanized to a degree that you don't see in a lot of particularly live-action movies that deal with uh, Mesoamerican people. There's this connection that they have to nature that is really emphasized. They ride on these giant turtles as a kind of ferry system around the rivers in El Dorado. Uh, they feed these colorful and sometimes giant birds, um, and they play games, they have culture. Humanity. There's a lot of humanity there. Yeah. And there's also a lot of children around, which is, I think, really interesting. It feels like a place where people live and raise their families and continue to, like, pass things on to each other. A lot of times, especially in animation, there's a tendency to only have, like, two types of models, like, adult humans and maybe some babies but there's like a wide range of ages of people in El Dorado and it's it's clear that the chief is very is a very supportive person and not like a king in a traditional sense it doesn't seem like he's 
lording over the people very much, so much as he is the one they all look to for guidance. And he, unfortunately, to a degree, looked to Sekel Khan for guidance. And I think never there trust is... the shifty role of his ear. Never trust the role of his ear. No, uh, the the way that they have this this dimensionality to their the way they live is I think quite important because it shows that if there's any residual sense of well what are you actually doing with all this wealth what are you achieving with it well they're living they are not only living but living well and living in the moment in a way that once you start obsessing about wealth for its own sake it is nigh on impossible to do and there's uh, there's a distinction about Sekel Khan and the way he seems to look at things, which is almost it's it's not the same as the tyranny that Cortez is bringing with him, but it definitely is reflected in many people in modern society where they have that stopped clock that's right twice a day thing going on. They fixate on a threat and then they harp on and on and on and on and on about it and then on the occasion that it happens they go, you see, I was right, you should listen to me. It's it's hard to tell exactly what Shekel Khan's role in the community is when there isn't two people pretending to be gods among them in the city because it doesn't seem like it does seem like there's a certain amount of human sacrifice going on because the people aren't surprised by the suggestion. They don't like the suggestion, but they aren't surprised by it. So you get the sense that it's always been a bit of a tenuous relationship here where there is this belief in this religion and this cultural element of we must have some amount of wickedness within us that we need to purge to have earned this paradise and I think that's another one of the reasons why Chell is a character who nobody really wants to deal with because she is somebody who was just about to be executed for her crimes against the gods. She is an example of the kind of thing that is dangerous that they need to get rid of so that they can maintain this perfect world that they have been living in. And Shekel Khan is the embodiment of that part of their culture that the chief is fighting against and the people generally don't like but do cower to out of fear. Yeah, they consider him almost, they, they almost seem to consider him to be a necessity, uh, an unpleasant one, but one that they, they need to tolerate. I do wonder how much of his actions are coming from a place of sincerity though because initially I I remembered him slightly differently as being somebody who was twisting things entirely for his own ends and for his own benefit but for the most part he seems to be scared disgusted by the people around him and just this sort of cowering fear-filled semi-wretch who is semi-wretch well in the sense that he's he's a shameful semi-wretch he's maintaining a degree of authority when he speaks to the people Mm. but the second he goes before Cortez he's a puddle on the ground yeah this city has been granted a great blessing and what have we done to show our gratitude a meager celebration the gods deserve a proper tribute 
The beginning of a new era! The dawning of a new age! Demands! Sacrifice! Oh. I don't like this. Julia, we've got to do something. Stop! This is not a proper tribute. You do not want the tribute? No, no, no. We, we want tribute. Uh, it's just that, um... Tulio, tell him. The stars are not in position for this tribute. Like he says, the stars can't do it. Not today. Ah, well, perhaps it is possible I misread the heavens. Don't worry about it. To err is human. The plot, as we said, is uh, is almost entirely supported by conning uh, the Aztecs into believing that European men are all-powerful, benevolent deities, uh, which has a disparaging tone for native people as being unintuitive and ruled by superstition and fanatical belief in foreign and strange religions. One of the saving graces is Olmos's chief, Tanabok. There's one conversation he has with Miguel where he ends it, uh, where they, they're working out what he's going to do next. And he ends it saying, to err is to be human, and then leans back and uh, Miguel stops, turns and looks at him while he's trying, uh, about to climb down a ladder. And it, it appears from the expression on his face that the chief has worked out quite a while ago that they're just human beings. I would say the same thing, yeah. <laughs> and he's observed the positivity that they have on a people who have been scared, not frenzied fear but he can see a merit to them being there which is a softer more understanding way of reaching out across two very different cultures rope yes rope exactly my point vertical ascension requires a lot more uh rope my lord <laughs> and look at this <clears throat> this doesn't look at all secure Chief, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, but all in all, it is a complete do-over. You know, Lord Miguel, if you wish to stay, you only need to say so. You mean forever? Of course. Oh, no, I can't. I have to go back with Tulia. We're, we're partners. Big plans in the other world, huh? Yep. Big plans. Well, then, I better go get some more rope, huh? Oh, Chief, um, forget about the rope. Um, my mistake. Hey, to air is human. He also sees the connection between Miguel and Tulio in a way that they occasionally don't see themselves. Mm. There's a, a, a song moment going on when they are about to separate and it's the chief who kind of nods at Miguel mm. as if to say, well, go on then. At the very least, you need to go and say goodbye. Elton John's music. Yes, I was going to say, we need to talk about the, the fact that this is a musical. Mm. Um, it is a musical in a way that animated musicals were of the era, suffering from something I like to call montage sickness. <laughs> uh, I would say this 
uh, film has a mild case where the the montaginess doesn't detract from any of the important emotional moments. Mm-hmm. It mostly montages things that make sense to be montaged. Yeah, uh, it's it's one singer in the style of Tarzan with uh, uh, Phil Collins, who I'm sorry, folks, I should have said Phil Collins is the greatest when we talked about him years ago, and I have subsequently had many, many tweets at me going, you're crazy, you're out of your mind, Phil Collins, and that Tarzan track, you know what, those are some great songs, but it's the same kind of thing where Elton John comes in and says, I'm gonna sing what's on their minds, and you can watch their sad little faces. I will say that it is. it does this better than a later Disney movie which suffers the Brother worst Bear. from this Brother Bear. The, Brother uh, Bear. Uh, which Dan himself, Dan Floyd himself called aggressively mediocre in its soundtrack. <laughs> probably one of the most frustrating movies, but that's for another day. Mm. Um, oh, it, it was for another day a long time ago. <laughs> yes, I, I remember. But the point being... The music in this movie usually serves primarily as mood rather than direct narrative mm. or character moments. Yeah, it, the, it doesn't conform to the um, Howard Ashman thing. If if you took any of these songs out, you wouldn't have the same film. There isn't that same I want song. I say that, but the song playing in the background is without question, and it expresses what... Miguel cannot say in words, which is, I kind of want to stay here. It's not a powerful I want song, and it could just have been done entirely visually with some lovely Hunt Zimmer guitar in the background. But this is what I mean about the wonderful Elton John just singing what he sees. I'm thinking now, I want to stay. The weather's nice and they have monkeys. And actually, we were watching The Prince of Egypt earlier today. That one, the songs are absolutely key. They are emotional peaks. Mm, Indeed. You could see a Broadway adaptation of Prince of Egypt. Oh, yeah. If you tried to do a Broadway adaptation of The Road to El Dorado, you'd be writing original songs, and it just wouldn't... I mean, you could probably do it, but it would be a very different piece. Yeah. Yeah. There is one exception. There is one song in this movie that is sung by the characters, and it is a jam, and I've always loved it. <laughs> God, it's apparently the actors uh, did not have a great time singing it because mm. neither of them are singers. Uh, but it doesn't really show in the final version, and I think that that strong shift in the reality works pretty well because it's a party scene, and it is them at the peak of this con showing off what they are capable of and saying what their goals are for the rest of it. It's as much of an I watch song as you get. It's it's also notably kind of a conversation between the two of them as they are in turns bringing up uh, the pros and ironically cons of doing this whole pretending to be a god scheme and kind of answering one another's concerns with suggestions of how they can act in ways that will keep them alive. It also really leans into the bright primary colors and psychedelic imagery by enhancing them all with alcohol. Yes. (laughs) I hardly think I'm qualified to come across all sanctified. I just don't cut it with the cherubim. Julia, 
a breeze Which father suits us in the interim It's me and him, oh my god It's tough to be a god Tread where mortals have not trod Be deified when really you're a sham Be an object of devotion Be the subject of song It's a rather touching notion All those prayers and those salams And who am I to bridle If I'm forced to be an idol If they say that I'm a god That's what I am What's more, if we don't comply With the locals' wishes I can see us being sacrificed or stuffed You have a point there, very good thinking. So, let's be gods, the perks are great. Yeah. Eldorado on a plate. Thank you. Local feeling should not be ribbon. Never rip up, never rip up a local feeling. No, my friend. It's tough to be a god. But if you get the people's nod, count your blessings. Yeah, keep them sweet. That's our advice. It's great advice. Be a symbol of perfection. Take their praise, take the collection as the multitude exalt. Gonna supernatural happen. We'd be crazy not to grab it. You got it. So sign on to New Gods for Paradise. The wine looks so good in that song. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which kind of, sort of, in a roundabout way, brings me to the rich vein of polyamorous pansexual energy threaded throughout this entire production, my god. Oh, yeah, this is a strong Mm -hmm. triad, this group. (laughs) I've always appreciated how genuine all of the relationships are between the three leads. Mm. Chell and Miguel have the least going on between them. Yeah. They don't well, they both want uh, Tulio. They both want Tulio, but they both also want adventure. Mm. You get the sense that once they are spending more time together, they have a lot in common. Yeah. It's just that in the course of this story, they are separated by the circumstances of what's going on. Though there is definitely a physical attraction between them, as well as the shared love of adventure, there is overt mutual ogling in either direction. The little voice? Remember the little voice? Just just for a second, imagine that you have one. What would it be saying about Chell? Oh. Oh, Miguel is right. You worry so much. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, yeah. oh, down, down, down. Oh. Mo! No! <laughs> Big trouble. <laughs> oh. Look, sweetheart, we're in the middle of a con here, walking the razor's edge. On the one hand, gold. On the other hand, painful, agonizing failure. <clears throat> I can't afford any temptation. Uh, distractions. So, I'm sorry. So sorry. Uh, but perhaps another time? Another place? <laughs> Too bad. I'm free now. 
I'm not really sure I trust you. Hmm, I'm not really asking you to trust me. Am I? Okay. But Chell and Tulio's relationship is set up as something that is originally off-limits, but is done anyways, is you don't have an issue with it as an audience as much as you might otherwise, because it's clear that the two of them genuinely really like each other. Mm. It's not just... It, it starts off as mostly a sexual thing, but by the midpoint, it's really clear that Tulio is kind of in love with this woman in a way that he probably has never been with another non-Miguel human being. Yeah, yeah, very and, true. And you can't be mad at him for breaking that that promise as much because it's clear that both of them, this isn't a fling, this isn't something that's going to get in the way because it's kind of inevitable. Just think, though, when you say that this is a relationship that seems to mostly come out of, like, this this raw sexual thing, what other animated movie do you get to say that about? It just doesn't <laughs> Specifically, a, a, a very neat three-way wherein the, like, one of them wants gold, one of them wants adventure, and one of them wants golden adventure. <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of, I, I think the initiation of the, of what becomes the, the real relationships between them as opposed to the, well, you're handy and you're helpful for the thing I'm trying to achieve right now, is when... Chell kind of picks up on the where their values lie as individuals and she understands very quickly how drawn Miguel is to the natural surroundings and the beauty of the city and encourages him to go out and engage with that and then she sort of uses this this very earthy sexual physical engagement with Tulio initially to distract him so that Miguel can go and do that, but then she really leans in hard to it. Yep, I've seen a lot of pictures where she really leans in hard. Anyway, um... <laughs> I don't think so. I, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'll let you come back to Spain with us, like you wanted, and, um... Yeah, I can see my way clear to throw on you... 10%? <laughs> you know, maybe I won't go to Spain with you and take a third. Oh, like you don't want to go to Spain. Oh, like you don't want me to want to go to Spain. I want you to want... Mm-hmm. ...what you want. Mm-hmm. Go on. All right. Cards on the table. Uh, I want you to come to Spain with me and Miguel. Mostly me. Especially me. Only me. Forget Miguel. <laughs> as long as that's what you want. Me too. Okay. Deal. Deal. I also really appreciate that at the end, the standard Hollywood thing to do would be she and Tulio have a romantic clinch and it is made abundantly clear that Tulio has a scorching case of the not gays. And that uh, Miguel is his friend, whom he has incredible chemistry with, and that's all. Thank you very much. Now let's go off as a two and a one together, but two and a one definitely. Kirk, Uhura, Spock. Definitely not going anywhere with that. Instead, all three bundle onto that horse, and then she rides off without them, and they run off both chasing her. And she's like, come on, guys. And it's like, thank you very much, movie, for not doing the standard thing. 
Another way the movie could have gone if Chell was the main character is, Chella, you must choose between these two hunky boys. One of them is young, dumb, sexy, and passionate. He will never lie to you or hurt you, but he does have the hots for your baby. And he's played by a terrible actor, just the worst. The other one is cold, aloof, and manipulative. And he's 116 years old, and he treats you like a pet, and he's a total creep, and he watches you while you sleep, and he wants to kill you all the time, just all the time. And you're terrified of growing old, and maybe you should look at that, and you're obsessed with him, and he's played by a terrible actor, just the worst. But this movie doesn't do that, it says Chella, these two hunky Spaniards, both played by extremely talented actors, charismatic, experienced, adorably human, flawed and fallible but enthusiastic. They're kind of dirtbags just like you. They have quick wits and amazing tongues. Choose, choose, human. Choose between the two hunky boys. Both, 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 both is good. It was baby's first OT three. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the film runs pell-mell into its third act with uh, Miguel and Tulio fighting over the former wanting to stay and the latter wanting to leave with Chell. Chekhal Khan conjures a giant stone jaguar to chase them away, and it ends up falling into a whirlpool with Chekhal Khan, who then emerges outside of the city to meet Cortez in the jungle, believes him to be a real god, and agrees to lead him to El Dorado. As Tulio and Chell are about to leave in the boat laden down with gold, and Miguel prepares to stay behind, they spot smoke on the horizon, know that Cortez is coming, and realize they need to hide the city from his gaze. They do this by crashing the boat, losing the gold, but also Miguel doesn't get to stay. No one can go back in. Cortez believes Shekel Khan is a liar and walks on by. And the bittersweetness of this ending is very much downplayed in favor of onward to the next adventure. In fact, most of the emotional ambiguity rests within the rift between Miguel and Tulia at the point of their separation before this. There isn't much I haven't shared With you along the road through it all, there'll always be tomorrow's episode. Suddenly, that isn't true. There's another avenue beckoning the great divide. Ask no questions, take no side. Who's to say who's right or wrong? Whose course is run All I know is all we had is over said and done Friends never say goodbye Never say
uncomfortable side of this whole story that the film both deliberately evokes and would also rather you didn't think about too much is the rape of the Americas and genocide of Aztec people and culture by conquistador Hernán Cortés, one of the most evil, greedy, monstrous men in the history of Blood for Gold, voiced in this film by noted right-winger Jim Cummings, who plays Winnie the Pooh as well. The immediate threat in this film is a fourth conniving con man, Chekhov Khan, played by Amand Asante. He is the high priest who abuses his position and is seemingly only out for himself. His, his worry is not for his people. He, in fact, leads Cortez to his people. He betrays everyone so that he can save his scraggy hide. And he also is the one who encourages human sacrifice, meaning that we can put all the evil eggs into one basket. But unfortunately, that basket comes from within the Aztec people, and when the scheming royal vizier type is defeated, Cortez, distracted from this safely hidden city, then goes off into the jungle with his army, readying up to perform unspeakable atrocities. That makes the ending of this film a sweet, fun diversion from a real-world horror whose effects can be felt to this day. This is unfortunately the unavoidable side effect of invoking real-world history into an adventure story. Mass-scale tragedy is an overwhelming flavor. Like, once you've got it in your film, you can't really massage it out with sweetness. Not in the same way. Yeah. It did occur to me when Cortez turns up at the end, and, and they, they do incorporate this, like, the colour scheme shifts visibly. Yeah, to Everything being gets dark, dark. greyish blue, and it's Absolutely, it's and you know and this foreboding. is going nowhere good. He's a del Toro villain. Yeah. Yeah, he's the, uh, he's the paragon the of who, his society. Exactly. He's the one who ordinarily would be hailed as a hero... And yet. Yeah. He's John Smith in Pocahontas, but he's also uh, Radcliffe. Yeah. Will Finn of Disney and Bluth and David Silverman of The Simpsons were originally the film's two directors with a tentative release schedule for the fall of 1999. And originally, the story was conceived as a dramatic epic due to Jeffrey Katzenberg's penchant for large-scale animated films, which conflicted with the light-hearted elements that were in the early script. This early version of the story had Miguel initially conceived as a raunchy Sancho Panza-like character who died but came back to life so much that the natives assumed that he was a god as well as it also had steamier love sequences and scanty clothing designed for Chell. I'm like scantier than than that? She's wearing wow. some small bits of cloth in this film, so my goodness. Good grief. In Elliot and Rossio's treatment, the film was meant to end with Miguel and Tulio saving the Mayan people from Cortez, abandoning civilization to live in the nearby jungle amidst the tragic backdrop of the destruction of this culture. So it was going to end much more bittersweetly. 
However, while The Prince of Egypt was in production, Katzenberg decided to change course suddenly that their next animated... It's what he does. That then, But it's what Disney did as well with The Kingdom of the Sun. They were like, the drama thing isn't working. Make it a comedy. No, not that kind of comedy. What would Jeffrey do? No! (laughs) So... Katzenberg decided that their next animated project should be a departure from its serious adult approach. He wanted to get all the audiences, and he desired for the film to be an adventure comedy now. Production was referred to as the as El Dorado, The Lost City on Hold. Miguel and Tulio were rewritten as petty swindlers, and the setting was changed to a more luscious paradise. Additionally, the romance was toned down and... No, it wasn't. <laughs> Good lord, what was it before? Straight up fucking and sucking? And new clothing was designed for Chell. Producer Bonnie Radford explained, we originally thought it would be rated PG-13, and so we skewed it to that group. Oh yeah, everyone knows all about those extremely successful long line of PG-13 hand-drawn animated American adventures. I can name all of them. There's Everything by Ralph Bakshi. But we thought we wouldn't want to exclude the younger kids, so we had to tone the romance down. Finn and Silverman left the project in 1998, two years before the eventual release, which means it was put on hold for a couple of extra years, uh, following disputes over creative direction, and they were replaced by Bergeron and Paul. Katzenberg reportedly co-directed the film, albeit remaining uncredited. He did a good job. I didn't feel his presence too too much. <laughs> the ghost of Jeffrey. <sighs> okay, now here's the sad part. Indigenous rights organisations criticised the movie for its sexist and racist themes and for its lack of historical sensitivity. <sighs> Olin Tetzcalipoca, director of the Mexica movement, pointed out that the movie portrays Chell as a sex toy for the two Spaniards and that the representation of them as saviours from the barbarity of human sacrifice and from an indigenous collaborationism with Cortez has no respect for history. Now, on a minor level, I disagree that Chell is just a sex toy. She has too much agency for that. But on a major level, I can completely understand how this film could be offensive as hell, using the plight of a displaced and largely eradicated people as a backdrop for swashbuckling adventure, which seems doubly poor as a decision after the maturity and tact shown two years prior in The Prince of Egypt. This was a seriousness that Jeffrey very deliberately wanted to avoid this time, a decision which did not pay off financially and in terms of critical acclaim when compared with Disney, which appears to be the only two things he cares about. However, Despite its naive bluntness and sidelining of historical suffering, and despite seeing The Road to El Dorado only a few years ago, I actually saw this really late in life, like 2015, 2016, maybe after I'd written a whole bunch of books that actually have a very similar energy. My name is Miguel Alejandro Delgado, and I am far from home has worked its way into my writing alongside many other historical adventures that shy away from going too hard for fear of losing their audience. I can see familiar elements in Tiger's Eye, The Princess Thieves and Panther Soul. 
a film can be troubling and even wrong-headed whilst still doing some good. Seemingly disposable or disregarded romps like this one which leave the hard-hitting reflections on our behaviour to one another as a divided people untouched on the table can help refocus creators far down the threads of influence who are unafraid to go to those places because they don't care about gold. We are alone, save for the moon. He is weak now, crying softly inside. We have entered the window of stillness. It is time. He breathes his last and is still. I loosen my grip and he falls away from me. I touch my forehead to his. You will make my people stronger. Rest now. Go with the father of passing and return to this world in whatever form is next. It was a time that an interest in indigenous peoples was on the rise, but where white uh, creative heads still weren't directly communicating with indigenous peoples on their stories. I am happy to say that we are starting to move past that, I believe. With far too long, yeah. After too long. It's, I love this movie. I love Blue Lone Stitch. I love The Emperor's New Groove. They all have problems in this regard to different extents mm. and in different ways. I don't love Pocahontas. That's probably the worst of them. So good for me, I guess. But <laughs> Moana is a step forward from all of those. That was what I was gonna say. Moana is a is a step forward. Taika Waititi is a is a Maori indigenous man who has done multiple films for Disney at this point. We are starting a slow growth into indigenous people getting the chance to tell their own stories on wide screens. And I highly recommend everybody try to find some stories by indigenous storytellers. Try to find some movies about their experiences because they have an extremely rich storytelling tradition of their own and it's beautiful to see and we all deserve to hear their voices. All of us have been denied that opportunity and they have been denied the ability to speak. It's complicated. It's always complicated when people play with other people's cultures. But the movie is genuinely extremely good. It's wildly well animated. The character work is fantastic. There are elements that play into unfortunate and dangerous tropes about indigenous Mesoamerican people. But I do believe as a whole, the people are represented as being fundamentally good people who don't have some sort of inherent bloodthirsty violence to them. And the Europeans are arguably much more portrayed as being inherently violent and bloodthirsty. <laughs> Thank you so much to Gideon, the sponsor of this episode, and all of the sponsors of our commissions season. Next week is the final part of that, and then we have The Batman. And School of Movies is kept on our little road to adventure with 
the kind sponsorship of all of you lovely people on Patreon. You are our Golden Horseshoes. Big shout out to the top tier $15 folks every week. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tima Hellas Hario, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So that will about do it. We have reached the end of the road to El Dorado. Before we go, Mackenzie and Nathan, would you like to tell the folks at home where they can find the work you're most proud of? So probably the easiest way to find anything that we're going to be working on, for me at least, is uh, on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. I'll post updates there. Uh, we're still doing video game, the movie, the podcast, working on getting out the next Rainbow Connection, which was actually on uh, Treasure, Treasure Island. So if you want to hear our opinions on that, Nathan just has to finish editing it. Yay. <laughs> yep. And you can find me likewise on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram. Uh, all the links to our shows are on there as well. And we will be back next week with a truly groundbreaking, one-of-a-kind animated classic. It's Who Framed Roger Rabbit with Daniel Floyd. So I have been Alex Shaw, and I fight like your sister. And I've been Sharon Shaw, and I fought your sister. And school's out. Someday out of the blue In a crowded street or a deserted square I'll turn and I'll see as if our love were new Someday we can start again Someday soon Here comes the night Here come the memories Lost in your arms Down in the foreign field Not so long ago Seems like eternity The sweet afternoons Still capture me Someday out of the blue In a crowded street Or a deserted square I'll turn and I'll see you As if our love were new Someday we can start again Someday soon I still believe I still put faith in us We had it all And watched it slip away Where are we now? Not where we want to be
comes the night Here come the memories Lost in your arms Down in the foreign fields Not so long ago Seems like eternity The sweet afternoons Still capture me 